if we don't make some dramatic changes in, in terms of in rethinking models and rethinking, you know, the main tenets of how we get capital in the hands of founders, nothing is going to change. And we're focused on massive markets that are revolutionary in how they impact our working world. In venture and in a lot of startups, you have to just figure out what do you love and what is authentic to you as a person and find a way to follow that. Welcome to Unlocking the AI Advantage podcast. We are here to fast track your success by leveraging the power of AI in business. Each episode brings you closer to the cutting edge of technology and entrepreneurship. Let's dive into the world of AI and make extraordinary strides in your journey. Are you ready? Let's go. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the next episode of uh, Unlocking the AI Advantage podcast. Uh, this is your host, Ramesh Danta. And today I'm really, really excited uh, that I'm going to bring a guest that, um, that I've been associated uh, with her network for the past couple of years. Uh, but uh, uh, this is the first time I'm talking to uh, her. Uh, so I gave a clue, a clue already. So, um, and uh, her name is Gail Wilkinson. Uh, she is a VC and angel investor herself, but she runs a, a VC fund along with an angel investor fund. So we'll get to know more about that later on. So with that, Gail, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ramesh. So I gave a very brief introduction, but that is not sufficient. That doesn't do justice <laughs> to what you do. So Gail, so why don't we um, get started with your introduction? Sure, sure. My name is Gail Wilkinson. Right now, I'm a VC and an angel, as mentioned. But if we back up a little bit, I have been in corporate strategy. I've been in market research consulting. And um, I realized after a few, years, a few years in the working world that I was very much an entrepreneur. So I started my first business in 2008. It was an HR tech company. And that one failed after a few years. I went to business school. I started another one, also failed. And my third startup was right after I, I finished business school in 2012, that was Irish Angels. So the third one stuck and I was able to figure out how to build a venture firm, how to do deals, how to help founders. And it was a lot of fun. And so fast forward to today, I'm on to my second investment firm called Vitalize and we invest in work tech firms at the seed stage out of our fund. Our fund is a 23.4 million fund two and uh, fund one was about 16 million that's fully deployed now. As Ramesh mentioned, we also have the Angel community, so that's 500 people that invest in pre-seed work tech deals. Okay. So, uh, Gail, so thank you for the introduction. So there are a few things that I would like to unpack from that introduction, okay? So we talked about, first thing is, uh, we talked about a fund, right? And you talked about the seed invest, okay? And then uh, the other one you talked about is an angel investor community called Vitalize that you started, which has a 500 uh, angel investors, which invests in pre-seed, Okay. So now, um, so let's uh, just put this in, in perspective, right? So, and by the way, my education uh, into all of this, um, uh, it's, it's exploded, I should say, with your webinar uh, that happened two years ago um, in association with the WeFund. And by the way, to the audience, and uh, so you should go to gale.vc. It's uh, in a Gale's website. And there is an angel investing uh, webinar, seminar uh, kind of presentation. So I please advise you to you know, go and look at that one. It's a fantastic presentation that takes you uh, through the entire spectrum. So, but in this recording, so Gail, so without going into too many details. So let's first talk about the pre-seed, seed, the different stages of investing, and that'll come to angels and other kinds of investing. Yeah, so 
lots of different definitions out there. The way that we think about pre-seed and seed is that they're both very early stage. And we have to come up with some way to delineate the two. We think about pre-seed rounds as those up to about 2 million and seed is about 2 to 5 million. And the companies that are raising the, at the pre-seed that we look at tend to be post-product and pre-revenue or very early revenue. They're just about to start selling. And those that come through for our fund at the seed stage oftentimes have something like $250,000 of ARR. So they're a little bit further along. The pre-seed that we're talking about is really the first institutional money where they're taking some angel money, maybe some angel group, maybe a small VC or two, and some friends and family. So it's that, it's that first you know, institutional check that is big enough for them to make some real progress off of. And the seed oftentimes is the second one of those. Um, the other thing that's a little bit different is just check size. So our check size out of the angel group tends to be about fifty to $100,000. And our check size out of our fund is two fifty to $750,000. So it is defined by the, how much money they're raising and what stage of revenue recognition they are in, and mm -hmm. then uh, how much uh, money that you are contributing uh, are investing into the startups. Okay, so that's and the valuation is the only other thing. So the valuations in our angel group tend to cap out around ten million post, mm -hmm. and they tend to max out around twenty million post in our seed fund. So got it. And the valuations could be all over the place, as we know, depending on the investment landscape. Yes. Right. Right. So now the second uh, thing is about the investors themselves. Okay. So um, I've learned, uh, so and again, please do add color to it, that there is a friends and family, there is a, a crowd uh, sourcing, crowd uh, funding that, that the companies go through where they go beyond the friends and family. And then afterwards, there's an angel and then the, the VCs come in. Right. So do all startups go through these stages or it depends on the founder of the company? Historically, it was, it was much more of a timeline like that where you would progress through a stage by stage. But I think today that these are all getting blurred together and oftentimes combined into the same rounds. One of the interesting things about crowdfunding, which historically has had a bad rap from VCs, um, and oftentimes lawyers say it's bad. Um, it's, it's, that's not necessarily the case. And I think founders are starting to see that when they raise money from their customers, they get a benefit of marketing in addition to the benefit of capital and the doors. And it can actually catapult their business at a time where they really need that growth. Um, so I think strategically crowdfunding will become part of a lot more rounds than we've ever seen before, even alongside VCs and alongside angels. So I, my, my thinking is we'll continue to see it just merging. Okay, I see. Okay, all right. But this, uh, the distinct uh, stages are still there. I mean, depending on, uh, typically a founder might get started with own money or uh, friends and family. That's good. So uh, that helps out. So now looking at uh, the vitalize and then how uh, your organization has evolved. So I can understand Irish Angels, somewhat of a captive because you came from Notre Dame. And then, uh, so you know the network, so you could tap into the network. So you started Irish Angels. That's my assumption. I don't know, right? So you could definitely correct me. So then, uh, so that got you started. That's fine. But how did you get the idea of vitalized angels, which is, hey, I need to go into the broader community. I want to do this. Yeah. Well, the honest answer is I've been investing now for about 11 years. And I think we have to find ways to increase access to this asset class. 
and it's not just out of charity. I think it's really smart business sense to bring more people to the table because it is such an exclusive community. And um, there is this thinking that, oh, I don't belong because I don't come from these two schools and I don't live in this area of the country and I don't look like this. And that that thinking, I think, needs to go away. And it is going away. But we wanted to allow truly anybody in the world to be able to come and learn and invest and invest as low as $1,000 and invest with a fairly low um, quarterly fee. We learned that these barriers are keeping people out and that shouldn't be the case. So um, Vitalize Angels was really a way for us to include more people. And the cool thing is that a lot of founders really love it and they will carve out space for us because they see the real value in it. So, but how do you distinguish yourself from something like a WeFunder where you partner with? Because I would have assumed that if I go to WeFunder, by the way, which I invested through WeFunder, so full disclosure, right, in companies before Whitewise. Okay, let me put it that way, right? So WeFunder is there, and then I expect them to do the due diligence. Um, and then, uh, uh, well, not significantly, I would say, because but they would uh, provide a platform for companies to put their pitches out there and all this stuff. Some basic due diligence I expect them to do. And then it's a, you know, from 25 to hundred dollars, whatever it is, I can invest in that. Right. So then, but you are partnering with Vitalize. Don't, I mean, is, is a WeFunder a competitor to Vitalize? Uh, how does that work? No, I see them as a partner. Um, well, number one, I don't think that there are many competitors at early stage because the great thing about really early stage investing is it's 99% collaborative and it has to be. Um, it's just much more competitive when you go later stage into growth. But with with WeFunder, and I actually just saw a couple of of my friends from WeFunder the last couple of days here. They um, their goal is to democratize access. Our goal is to democratize access. Where we differ is in what the SEC allows. So the Securities and Exchange Commission will not allow me as a VC to take fees or carry. So any monetary gain on deals from non-accredited investors. And that's in place so that I cannot take advantage of people. Well, uh, from like WeFunder has gone through a very long process in order to get licensed and to be a proper broker in the eyes of the SEC in order to legally do this. And that's why we have to partner with them because they're able to facilitate those deals with non-accredited investors in a way that is per the regulations. Where I, I am keeping everything separate and the interesting thing about our model is that we charge a quarterly fee, which has nothing to do with the deals. It is for access to deals and it is for education and just to be a part of the network. So we're really just covering our costs. And what we do is we curate every month out of the hundred or so deals that we see, we show our investors the best one or two. So that you know, we're using our experience from a decade of VC to get the strongest deals in front of the community. Whereas with WeFunder, you know, there are great deals on there, but how do you find them? Oftentimes yeah. the best marketers that rise to the top. And that's not, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best business. Hmm. Okay. So that's excellent. Thank you. So I, um, I've been part of wide lies, as I said, um, and then I could clearly see the two points that you keep mentioning. What is the democratized access to the funds, right? To the founders that you believe should get access, right? So with respect to call it diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever word that we want to use, that's one thing. Now the one is a work tech, right? Which is the kind of companies that you, um, you know, believe uh, will be the future, right? So let me just take this into uh, the next level of discussion. You know, Democratize access, uh, I'll be very honest with you, it, it sounds good, 
right? So lots of companies do it. And then there's a lot of, uh, as you know, uh, debate is going on right now about this kind of thing, right? So why democratize access is important for you, Gail? I've just, I've encountered so much as an investor who looks different. And um, I do think being different is a strength and I lean into that. And I don't, I'm not one that's going to complain about all of the, the crap that I've endured, which is a lot. Um, I just kind of work through it. But at some point here in the last few years, I've just kind of taken a step back and realized um, if we don't make some dramatic changes in, in terms of in rethinking models and rethinking, you know, the main tenets of how we get capital in the hands of founders, nothing is going to change. If, you know, you're a person that looks different or you have a child that looks different, whether it's a person of color, it's a, it's a female, it's somebody that identifies as not what 80% of funding is going to, um, you have a real problem on your hands because you can't just say, oh, it's just going to change in the future. It's absolutely not true. And we have to start to do things today to create avenues for that to happen. So even though we're only investing you know, a million dollars a year out of our fund, there will be ripple effects from that. You know, our angel community is touching a lot of deals. There will absolutely be deals that do really well out of this. People will absolutely make money off of some of these deals. And what we're going to do is prove to people that they are smart enough to do this. And then they'll tell their friends. But it's just a long process. And so I really welcome anybody that cares about this space to do whatever, even if it's tiny, to change this. Because we all have to start thinking differently today in order for it to change the future. I agree with that. <laughs> So, um, so what I'm hearing is it's a combination of personal experiences and your worldview. Is that, mm -hmm. is it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could tell, I could tell you some really interesting stories that, that, that happened as recently as three days ago where I was treated like, I mean, you just, your jaw would drop. Um, and oftentimes I'm the only woman on the cap table and I'm the only one being treated this way. And, you know, you just start, to, you start to ask, why does that happen again and again and again? When I have a great reputation and I'm very helpful and, you know, it's, it's just unfortunate, the unconscious bias that happens when you have people who are really used to one specific thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we are human beings, are uh, social animals and we congregate around the groups of people who we comfortable, I mean, comfortable with that meaning look like or whatever, right? So it's a language, mm -hmm. culture, a combination of uh, those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I have lots of experience that I can share as well, but it's about you getting from <laughs> your experience. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm sure you've got good stories too. Yeah. So the second one is the work tech. So um, how did you uh, come to the realization that that is going to be the focus of Vitalize? Is, is work tech also the focus of your fund as well? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I'll first just define how we think about work tech. Yeah. It's any B2B software that revolutionizes workflows or work outcomes. And if you think about what that means, you know, a lot of a lot of B2B or enterprise software is generalist. It might be data infrastructure, it might be logistics, it might be customer service, but it it will work across a lot of different industries. So it's not verticalized. Um, a lot of that is work tech because today, for example, back to customer support, it is an extraordinarily bad an inefficient function. And so we invested in a company called Stylo that leverages um, AI, and they were doing that before the craze, um, to figure out how do we truly improve a customer support experience for customers. And it's 
we invested in that business because it's a huge market and it will absolutely improve work outcomes. That's the type of thing that we really want to do at Vitalize. Um, a lot of people will say, oh, you just invest in future of work. So you're doing productivity or things like Slack or Zoom. Like that's absolutely not what we're focused on. We're focused on massive markets that are revolutionary in how they impact our working world. Um, and so within that, you know, I think it's fun for two reasons. Number one, I've been investing for a decade and I've made more money on the B2B side. Um, so I would just say what, what we're good at, right? I'm better at B2B than B2C. And two, I have a personal interest in HR and that work side, um, both from an organizational management side and then also as the consumer. And so the cool thing about work tech is that we also have to think about the end user experience, not just the buyer at a company. And that makes it, in my opinion, the most fun part of B2B software because we are the end users of it, which is great. So then, uh, but this is the realization that came through after you started um, your Irish Angels. Uh, when did uh, when did you finalize and the tech work is the one I'm going to focus on? Yeah, so Fund One was Generalist B2B Software, and that was 2018. And then in 2021, so about three years ago, we decided to focus further. And part of this is an evolution, and any any good investor is going to continue to evolve, evolve exactly how they're investing. One of the things that I could see happening was so much more capital is coming into the market that we have to differentiate and we have to really be strong at something. And I realized that when I would get a good deal across my desk, I would say, okay, this is a prop tech deal. I'm going to send it to my buddy Zach at Metaprop, or this is a, a marketing tech deal or an ed tech deal. And I realized we all think in terms of categories. And the unfortunate truth about a generalist investor is that they're not ever going to be at the top of somebody's mind share when a deal crosses their desk. And so like, okay, we have to really be specific about what we're looking for. And work tech was a natural evolution because of the couple of things that I mentioned, but also I had started two businesses in the area as well. So we've just, we've invested in it a lot. We know it. Uh, we think it's huge. Two thirds of the planet works and it's actually an underinvested space. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay. So great. Thank you very much. I think uh, I have enough of an understanding of vitalize and what you do and how you focus. And by the way, one other thing that I I learned, I have learned, and I just want to let audience know is the you know your your uh, way of thinking about investing, which is a portfolio uh, management, right? So think about uh, the, uh, the angels, angel investing as you know your a portfolio, right? So not just one thing, right? So one thing will make a hundred times or two hundred times, but you keep investing, in, uh, you know, managing a portfolio. So I think that is a a uh, great realization. Yeah, you have to think about the portfolio approach. Because okay. ideally, Ramesh, you invest in enough such that a few of them are just nutty successes. Right, right, exactly. So it's great. So Gail, the so next section, um, we're going to talk a little bit about you, uh, what drives you. Um, so, and uh, uh, I, have learned, I have learned a lot about you uh, by going online. So the, the standard of detective work, okay? And then luckily for me, there's a lot of it already that you provided, okay? So on gale.vc, so that's there. So um, you you are a Kaufman Fellow, a class of 23. And then, uh, so we went to Notre Dame, uh, you know, fantastic school. Uh, then afterwards, uh, you went to Booth, uh, in between you worked for five years, uh, so orbits, and I think that's the main thing. And so I'm just trying to understand, um, so, you went and did your BBA in Notre Dame. So that means you, you, were, you thought that, hey, I want to go on business. 
right? And then do something with the business. And then you are proud and loud about your two failed startups, right? So I'm, I'm very, I shouldn't say I'm very surprised, but you lead off your conversations uh, and then websites, hey, I failed, I failed. I mean, not everybody uh, does it that way, okay? So, uh, but I really admire and appreciate you doing for that. So, so what was driving your desire to do business? Is it family or mentors? So if you could talk a little bit about Gail's uh, life a little bit. I come from a very small area, rural area of Indiana. And I had in one business class in high school, which was interesting. Um, and I've always liked art and I'm fairly creative. And I remember knowing, you know, I'm logical. I do well in school. I, I like, you know, I, I, I ran student government. And so I, I understood enough about business, um, even though my, my parents didn't have traditional business jobs. Um, they knew I wanted to go into it. And I picked marketing because that was the most creative aspect of business. <laughs> um, but there wasn't a ton of thought that went into it, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. So a lot, just, a lot of like my, uh, yeah, so I a lot of my journey has just been luck to be, to be honest with you. It's just kind of paying attention to things that I like and then trusting that at some point I'll end up in the right spot. Interesting. So you didn't come from a business family, right? You came from a rural that area. So then uh, somehow Notre Dame, you know, did something or you came across some people, I, I'm, I'm assuming, right? So there's all the kinds. Of, so can you talk about what transformations uh, that you went through and then who are the people who influenced uh, your, uh, you know, a way of life? It was interesting. I mean, going to Notre Dame, I was the valedictorian of high school and I, I am just very fortunate that I had been able to excel so much. And, and obviously Notre Dame, I was scared because I'm like, oh, you know, I'm definitely not gonna be as smart as these people and a lot of imposter syndrome there. Yeah. I think I think the year that I got in, um, they rejected like 250 valedictorians across the state of Indiana. And I was the first person from my high school to get admitted to the school. In fact, I thought, well, they probably admitted me because I'm not Catholic and they needed diversity. Um, but it was interesting because I went and I, I worked really hard. I had three jobs while I was there because I didn't have any money. And um, it was it was great. I met really good friends and I learned a lot and I went and worked at Nielsen afterwards. And I I, um, I was lucky enough to come back to the Notre Dame community when I launched my business after business school. But um, it, you know, it was just, it's just pure luck, you know, that I, that I picked it. I knew that I liked the people there when I visited uh, because I had been doing a lot of student government work in high school. And I went to a couple of conferences in different areas. And there were a few people that I knew from those conferences with, with kids from different states that went to school there. And I knew that they had really good character. Um, so I was lucky enough to get in, to be honest with you. And I went and it worked out and then landed a job in market research because I studied marketing and I thought I needed to go into something that had marketing in the title. Like, this is all true. <laughs> um, and, what you know, it was, yeah. then it just, the, the, the path kept winding. Okay. So then, uh, um, then you, for whatever reason, decided to go into startups, right? So instead of going, hey, I'll get a job, I'll keep working on my job, and then so a career ladder and treadmill and all that good stuff. But yeah, then yeah. also, why startups? I have bosses that would probably tell you this from my my five years in corporate America. I probably don't have the personality for, for corporate America because I, I work really fast and um, I can get bored really easily. And I know that, that 
they all, like many of them had challenges with me. If uh, I'm sure there are people listening who will laugh at this. Um, but I had great experience with, with, uh, both at Orbis and at Nielsen with different projects I'd worked on and they were, it was a lot of fun, but for example, what I did at Nielsen, it was just another forecast. So I would forecast new CPG product sales and Wrigley was my client. And like, once you do one extra gum and then you do one Orbit gum and then you do your second extra gum and you're like, okay, well, it's the same. Like the inputs are the same. The outputs are similar. Like it, it just wasn't, it wasn't going to be interesting enough. And Orbitz was a little bit more interesting because it was a tech company and, and I got to do a ton of different stuff across functions and that was a lot of fun. But by that point, I knew I wanted to start something smaller and I wanted to see if I could actually run a business, which is when I f- started my first one, well, on nights and weekends at Orbitz. Um, and and I, I really liked it. It was not successful, as I mentioned, but it was a success for me personally because it got me thinking about startups. And I went to Booth. Um, also was kind of luck. I mean, the guy that I was dating at the time was in the program and I met a lot of his friends who were awesome. And a lot of my um, my bosses, like like Adam from Orbitz was a student there at the time. And I was like, you know what? I think this is something I should consider because of the people. And so I made that decision based on the people and decided to just go after startups um, in 2010 when I started business school. So I, I heard uh, the word luck two times again. So I have to ask you this question. Why do you attribute uh, your journey uh, slash success to luck, uh, but not to, uh, uh, you know, to what you do? I mean, what you deserve, what, or what you're capable of. Hard work and positivity put us in a place to be lucky. And so I don't, I don't think that if, if I'd had a bad attitude or if I, you know, didn't have the right approach, I don't think I would have been lucky. So I definitely think I, I played some role in it, but yeah, it's, I'm I'm definitely somebody that believes that there's so much magic out in the world and in the universe. And if we just pay attention, it's trying to help us. And um, it was definitely helping me at the time. I, I see it even more today than I did then. Um, I actually just had a breakfast with a friend this morning who's in the venture world. And, and I said, I don't think that success in early stage investing is about sourcing, which is what every LP is going to tell you. How are you sourcing deals from us? I think it's about picking and like, for example, you know, we're, we're in a company that is just killing it right now. And it's in the prop tech space. Well, I'm not a prop tech investor, um, but I invested because it was a huge. I'm sorry, what is prop tech so that people, audience yeah. don't get Proper- lost? Yeah. Property tech. So it okay. has something to do with property. So this is a property. Is it real analytic- estate? Is it real estate kind of thing? But yes. tech and real estate? It can be construction. It can be um, real estate. And, okay. and so it's, it can be a lot of different things, but this it, company um, is called Placer and it is in, it's in location-based analytics. And I love the data. I love the team. Like they were amazing. And so we invested in 2018. And if you, if you were to say, well, anybody that understood the space would have invested. Well, I, I sent it to some of my friends who are in prop tech and they passed, but why did I invest? I'm not an expert in the space. You know, it's, it's this, it's this feel, it's how, how you pick deals is really where the magic in all of this is. And I would say a large extent is I got lucky. Like these deals that I get in and I, I decide to make that investment and another investor doesn't, like there is some element of luck in that. All across this industry and in startups and in BC, I do think, I think luck is a, is a factor that we don't talk about enough. Like it's, it's definitely there. 
And the reason I'm picking on Lucky is this, right? So because if somebody else is listening to the podcast, they want to replicate, they want to learn from you, they want to see what Gail has done, what are the building blocks to her journey, maybe I can uh, replicate and then do similar things. And then definitely they cannot replicate the luck, right? So what are the elements of your journey that you think are replicable? Like things that you did, somebody else could do and then possibly, you know, uh, help them out. I, lo I love this question because um, I actually tell people not to do what I did. And I say that because you're absolutely right. A lot of people want a prescription and they want to say, okay, tell me exactly which steps I need to take and I'm going to do those and then I'm going to find the success. But honestly, in venture and in a lot of startups, you have to just figure out what do you love and what is authentic to you as a person and find a way to follow that. Like I've done a lot of consulting and advising for people who are at a crossroads of their career. And I say, all that matters is that you figure out what you like and what moves you, what you're passionate about, and find some path that gets you closer to that. And trust that anything moving in the direction towards that, you're eventually going to find your path there. And some, some of us get lucky and find it faster. Um, and some have to take a very winding road to get there, but they'll eventually find it as long as they figure out what's important and authentic to them. And they honor that. And two, they make forward progress. And those are really the two steps to end up at a place that is very good for you. Um, I think another thing we have to touch on is imposter syndrome and jealousy and com comparing yourself to others. And you absolutely cannot do it because each person's journey is individual to them. And you just have to recognize that like, whereas Gail started Irish Angels in 2012, you might not be able to start another angel group again today because the landscape is completely different. There were 30 seed funds when I started Irish Angels. Today, they're probably 3,000. So like things change and things evolve. But today, listening to this right now are probably a couple of, of founders who want to get into venture at some point, and they're going to come up with a new business model for venture. And it's going to work. And people are going to think they're crazy if they bring it up, but it's something that they've been thinking about and they love and they think is going to work and they're going to try it and it's going to work. And that's what I think is really exciting about this industry because you don't have to do what other people did. In fact, you shouldn't. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. I mean, that's, uh, that's uh, eye-opening um, in terms of how the instead of saying, hey, you know, this is what I did, you follow kind of thing. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. I'm one of the only VCs that says this. I will tell you, I've had many VCs tell me to do exactly what they did for, to find success. And I find it extremely strange because if we all did the same thing, all we're doing is pushing prices up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So we are different people and different backgrounds, different contexts, different worldviews and all. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Gap. So appreciate it. Um, so I wish I could keep on going like this, but I have to go down another section. Yeah. <laughs> um, so honestly, I think, uh, so we both have things to do afterwards anyway. So the, the last section I would like to just have a discussion on uh, artificial intelligence, AI. And so I cannot, uh, we must skip that one because the, the topic of the podcast is unlocking the advantage one. And then one is that we have our own, uh, the AI entrepreneurs, uh, something that I'm very passionate about. Okay. So with that, so, uh, the reason I was probing you earlier about the work tech was that how did you pick, right? So that was the time, 2019, around that time, AI is all over the place, right? So everybody, you know, wanted to do something with AI, including myself. And then I reinvented myself with AI kind of thing. And so, um, so first, it's, it's a broad question. Like, what do you 
think about artificial intelligence in, in the context of what you do? AI is absolutely here to stay. Um, the interesting thing about work tech is that I do not think we're anywhere near investing in what I would call sole AI companies. Okay. When I think about work tech, I'm investing in a specific idea and business model that will have some flavor or component of AI, and they all should. But we haven't yet gotten to the point where an AI model or an AI process or you know something that's only AI is big enough or easy enough to understand to be mainstream within the work tech environment. And um, part of how I know this is I have a group of 50 experts that I talk to on a quarterly basis. These are CHROs, these are CPOs or chief people officers and um, HR tech executives. So they're in this space day in and day out and AI is on their minds, but they don't really know what to do with it. Um, And so I see the buying patterns where the thing that they're buying is something that that truly hits a pain point. And AI is not advanced enough yet to, to hit that pain point. Um, a lot of companies were trying AI solutions fast. I think that's going to slow down because what I'm hearing is a lot of these solutions are features and they don't want features. They want whole systems that reduce the number of products that they have to buy. So they're looking for simplification. They're looking for ease of use. They're looking for um, plug and play, like they don't want to do these huge integrations anymore and they want to get rid of vendors. That's way more important to them than being able to say all of our solutions are AI based. Right. So we are in that um, stage, I would say it's like you, you cannot do without it, right? So without investing uh, into AI, whether it's a people or, uh, you know, the, the technology kind of thing, because if you don't, then you're left out like, uh, you know, Nokia's of the world and, you know, Blackberries of the world, right? So you'll miss the boat, right? So you have to invest in it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I know, I mean, typically, the you know, when I was doing some consulting work, right? So you always start with the business problem, right? So you, what is the problem that you're trying to solve and what will help you solve the problem? Technology is a component of it, then you know, take do that, right? But to some extent, AI is at a stage where you, you, you're not... You can't start that way, right? So you have to start parallel that you have to invest in AI to learn about it and then and then also look at the business case and which one solves. And for example, we found out in our businesses the content side, uh, you know, content creation or content distribution. I mean, AI and all the tools that are there tremendously helping us, right? So, but there are other pieces so like the healthcare um, a company, a friend of mine, um, and uh, he does, uh, so for example, when you go to the doctor, uh, the doctor has to write what's called a letter of uh, you know, uh, authority like a, to justify why a particular procedure is needed to the insurance company. And then that takes time for the doctor to do the research, the AI is helping, right? So those are use cases like that, that is there. So are there work tech, other use cases you found where some of founders that you came across are able to use machine learning AI to solve some problems? Oh yeah. Um, there's many, many. So I'll give you some examples from a few of our companies. We have the one Stylo that I mentioned that is using AI to prioritize customer service issues and also to share, okay, here's what you should say to this customer. And it's very, it's gotten very, very good. So they're, um, they've been using AI models to learn over the last two years and they're launching, I think this month or next month, I guess next month at this point. Um, then we have a hiring company called SquarePeg. 
and they use generative AI to create or to help their customers create job descriptions. So that's uh, that's not the main thing that they do, but it's an important component of what they're doing because they're able to use their database of 75,000 plus people. And if you want to hire somebody, let's say you want to hire a CFO, what you'll do is put in the, your inputs of what you're looking for, and it's very fast. And then they'll use the machine learning, they'll go to their database, and they're going to serve up about 25 very relevant candidates for you. So that in and of itself is an awesome use. But then, okay, um, as I'm trying to get ready to hire, like I really don't have to do anything as the customer because they're able to use generative AI to make it truly seamless for me. Okay. So, so yeah, exactly. I mean, those are the specific guys, uh, the workflow automation or the content uh, creation distribution automation, the specific yeah. pieces, uh, and the research kind of thing, especially with the chat GPT and then uh, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And so the other thing that uh, we are doing, um, so when uh, the expression that I heard some time ago um, is I live by this, when there is a war, um, the, the people who are fighting the war, they are not, neither one of them would be the winners, right? The people who supply the arms, weapons to the people fighting are going to be the winners. So we are in the space of education, providing the tools, courses, this and that. So that seems to be a space. I mean, are you, are you seeing something similar to that? Yeah, we see a lot of infrastructure plays um, and they're, they're interesting for sure. I think, you know, I always really want to understand kind of the technical architecture behind that. And so we have a number of partners that we go to because um, I just see so much now where companies are saying, I'm, we're the AI for X or what, you know, they're very, very, very forward thinking about wanting to become this AI company that is critical. And unfortunately with the majority of them, I just don't see that. Um, what, what I care more about is your holistic business model, how AI plugs into that. Okay. And how you're getting proprietary data. The data I think is actually more important and yep. valuable than the AI models today, today, okay. because um, if you're, if you have data sets that no one else has, that's where the real value lies. So I actually dig in a little bit more around that, to be honest. Yeah. I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. The data is going to be the critical, at least as of now, who are the access to it. Uh, because if it's, it's if the whole data is democratized, then you are one of the players, no differentiation, but you have, uh, have proprietary data that like at Bloomberg, you know, we know about that. So they have that, the healthcare companies, you know, they have that. Uh, drug discovery in those areas. So excellent. So last question, Gail, uh, is uh, you come across a bunch of founders and you have your own uh, podcast, the Vitalize podcast, and then you give you help out founders. Uh, so give voice to them on your podcast. So as you go through the deal flow, evaluating, you said picking is the most important thing. So the founders, as you come across, so if you could talk a little bit about what are the characteristics that you are seeing or you have seen uh about the founders, because many people invest, they say, hey, I don't invest in ideas, I invest in people, right? So that's one of the things. I, I don't know if that is, I mean, you're doing obviously both of them, but uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the characteristics of the founders and uh, what type of people um, are successful, what type of people that you try to look uh, when, when you're investing? Yeah, I love I love resilient founders who really, really care about a topic and they're not gonna stop until they figure it out. And, and so that's kind of broad strokes of what I'm looking for. And then we can drill that down further into, um, so can, can exactly. I ask a question? Sorry. Uh, the resilient, uh, resilience does not show unless the person has gone through multiple iterations of 
the failures of success, right? So, but if there's a first-time founder, how do you uh, assess their resilience? Yeah, that's a good question. We we usually do like to invest in somebody that has started something. So, for example, uh, founder Shaylee um, from Elevate K12, which is transforming teachers and how teachers work, and it's this very cool tech product that allows um, superintendents to fill teacher shortages, and she's just killing it. Well, she owned a business in India before she came here and it, it wasn't a tech business, but she owned um, something very relevant in the teacher space. And so she was able to translate her experience, really understanding teachers and running a business that was successful, even though it wasn't a venture backed business and use that here as she's built out this, this huge success in the U S. Um, so we love seeing founders that have something or another one is um, one of our companies is in the daycare space. And it's wildly successful today. The founder had owned a daycare before. So they they show resilience in the sense that they started it. And, and specifically about that industry, they love it so much they want to fix it. They want to fix daycare. They want to fix education. They want to fix customer support. They want to fix hiring. They want to fix something that's big. Those are the types of founders that I really look for. I do not like when founders go and they whiteboard because they're trying to find a solution and they throw everything up on the wall and they're trying to be clever with it. So like if, if you're a founder, figure out what is authentic and what you love and only start a business in that area. I think that's critically important. Um, the next thing I really look for is character. And do I want to partner with this person for 10 years? Up to 10 years, you know, it's a long situation. I have to trust them. They have to be reliable. They have to be a good person. They have to be somebody who um, through thick, thick and thin, you know, good times and bad times, I'm going to want to work with them and I'm going to want to help them. So I really try to understand who's organized, who sends updates to their investors, who shows up to the meetings on time, who does what they say they're going to do, who's able to say, I don't know, I'll get back to you. And they actually get back to me. I'm, I'm watching all of that. Um, and I will say the one place that I've made the most mistakes on this is founders who turn out to be sociopaths. And what I mean by that is, uh, Founders are very controlling and manipulative, and I don't necessarily see that up front. So I'm actively trying to figure out ways to keep them out of my portfolio. I never only invested in you know a handful over the last decade, but they um, they it's really problematic when you find them. So I will add I, to the I, list. Was, I, I don't want to say the name of the company. We know I think uh, the the last company that went bust probably that's what you're thinking. No, so. no, 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 no. Actually, the majority are still still in business. Like three, three out of four are still around. Okay, yeah. So I watched a documentary uh, that is uh, just eye-opening for me. Uh, I know the world operates that way, uh, that the people who support that kind of stuff. Anyway, so it's Gail. Um, so anything that you wanted to talk about but we did not address today? No, I just I appreciate being on. I, as we mentioned, I'm very passionate about increasing access to the asset class. So if anybody on your podcast or much is interested in checking out Vitalize Angels, we're happy to extend a free quarter to them if they want to um, just email Larissa, L-A-R-I-S-S-A at Vitalize, V-I-T-A-L-I-Z-E dot D-C. And she can set you up with that free quarter so you can check it out. Um, it's a lot of fun. So great. Actually, I would uh, put out those in the notes as well. And then any follow-up questions, uh, definitely. I know Larissa. So um so definitely i'll, I'll do that thank you very much yeah. Gail. i really yeah, appreciate thank it thank you this was fun and that's a wrap 
on another insightful episode. But remember, the power lies in applying what you have learned. If you found value in our conversation today, please share it with others who could benefit, subscribe for more, and consider leaving us a review. Visit theaientrepreneurs.com for more resources, including golden gems of articles, chat GPT prompts, AI tools, tutorials, gifts, and much more. Let's keep pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Until next time.